Go with me to the book of Romans, chapter 12. Could someone bring me a tissue? (laughs) Otherwise, I'm going to be sniffing and pulling it back in the whole time I teach. Would you mute my microphone, please? All right. Thank you. That's good. I developed that skill in fifth grade, sixth grade, sorry, on how to make that very loud and obnoxious. Uh, That was calm. All right. Uh, I told someone earlier today, I said, this is is not good if you have something cooking at home, um, because I have not preached for three weeks, uh, and I have a lot of energy stored up, and on top of that, just got back from a preaching conference, where I was taught how to preach. Uh, So, um, uh, we're going to be here for a while, and I'm I'm just kidding, Um, hopefully we get through this very quickly. We're starting a new series today. we, we gave Rusty three weeks to go through 14 chapters of Hosea, and I'm going to take five weeks to go through 16 verses of Romans chapter 12. I'm not even going to get through the whole chapter. Uh, so today, uh, see last week we went from doing, what did you do last week? Was it eight verses, or eight chapters, nine chapters? Four through 14. So 10 chapters, something like that. Um, in one sermon, and we're going to go through two verses today. Uh, two verses. It's interesting, as I was studying uh, these, uh, these verses, I found out, uh, is anybody familiar with the preacher Martin Lloyd-Jones? Anybody heard of that great preacher? Martin Lloyd-Jones preached ten sermons on these two verses. Um, and that's not my goal, to preach ten sermons on two verses. Uh, uh, but the point is, is there's a lot that can be said. From these two verses. But let me start with this. We're going to talk about community. I think this passage has a lot to do with the inner workings, the relationships within the body of Christ. Uh, This is something that even though maybe comparably or relatively speaking, we as a body might do a better job at this. uh, But that doesn't matter, ultimately. What matters is that we're faithful to what God's word has called us to do. Um, From my church experience, I would say that our unity here, the sweetness of our relationships, by comparison to my experience, is sweeter. But it can be even so much more. We have a long way to go until we reach heaven. The awesomeness is that God has given us His Son, Jesus, and the power of the gospel to continue to sweeten our relationships and to continue to sweeten the body as we relate to each other as those who have been redeemed by the blood. So, uh, we're going to talk about community for the next few weeks. What does this look like? I don't want us to assume that we have this figured out. Because we don't. Uh, We have lots of room for improvement. Let me start with this. The church was designed by God to be gospel-centered, Christ-exalting, grace-filled, as a group of people, as a community, as a body. Some characteristics of the community of Christ would entail these, just from a quick glance of Scripture, even of the passages that we're getting ready to study over the next few weeks, that the body of Christ consists of, or is described as, gospel-transformed people, 
a community that thinks of others more highly than themselves, a place where we are gifted for the needs of each other, a place of loving each other genuinely, a place of outdoing each other and showing honor, a place of constant prayer, a place of contributing to each other's needs, a place of seeking to show hospitality, a place where we can cry with each other, a place where we can celebrate with each other, a place of living in harmony, and a place of humility. But I wonder if in our culture today that that would be the descriptors used of most bodies, of most local church gatherings of believers. Would that be the descriptors? Would that describe us? Maybe parts. Some, some things better than others. Instead, I think what we find around us is we find emphasis on buildings that look good, a focus on the exterior, a staff or pastoral staff that does all the ministry, a music that is pleasing to me as opposed to being most concerned about music that is pleasing to God and is gospel exalting. Also, we find sermons that are short, quick, and funny. Uh, that's not here. I am not short nor quick. Well, I am short. Sermons are not short, though. Nor am I quick, uh, and I'm certainly not funny, um, although that was kind of funny. Uh, every once in a while, God is good and gives me a little, like, hey, this is funny. Uh, I was telling someone the other day, I said, you know, asking you all questions is great, because then I, when you answer, I get to make fun of you, and that's the only humor that I know, uh, which is quite terrible, but uh, maybe that's sinful even. But anyways, I wonder, I wonder if even in our body, that we've adopted some things such as morality and pragmatism. I've found even in my own speech... My, I've found me giving myself or giving up good advice instead of taking everything back to the gospel. There's a difference. It's easy to slip into doing a certain task or choosing a certain path based upon pragmatism versus the gospel. Um, you know, secretly or subconsciously, uh, so morality, pragmatism, next, secret or secretly or subconsciously, maybe we've given in to being concerned first about our needs. So I'm going to choose this path, X, Y, Z, whatever that is, without regard to the body of people around me. First, it is, what, does, what do I need? Maybe we're also quick to acknowledge when someone has been, has, sorry, sometimes I think we are quick to, to notice when someone is not being hospitable to us, but slow to show hospitality to others. I wonder if we've given in to the idea that living in harmony looks more like avoiding fights than it does like singing a masterpiece. And as for humility... Now, I think that's often the furthest thing from our minds. Instead, Christian community is this. It's fundamentally, 
about expressing the mercy of God to each other. Community, the body of Christ, is fundamentally foundationed on, birthed from, empowered by the mercy, expressing the mercy of God to each other. It's about being members one of another. That we are members to each other. A concept that is desperately, or just amazingly gone from our current culture churches that we find ourselves in. Realizing that God has given us time, resources, and energy to be used for the good of others and for the glory of Christ. God has done this. I want to read to you the first part, which is kind of the summary of our church covenant. So if you bear with me for just a few moments, let me read this to you. Renovation's covenant says this, a member... As members of Renovation Church, we affirm this covenant with one another by God's grace for our good and ultimately for God's glory. Having been brought by divine grace to repent and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and to surrender our lives to Him and having been baptized as Christians in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, we covenant together to glorify God by making disciples of all nations. Together, we will draw near to God in worship. We will delight in the glory of God, depend on the presence of God, grow in the knowledge of God, and submit to the Word of God as our all-sufficient authority in our lives and in His church. Together, we will hold fast to the hope we profess. We will regularly participate in communion as we solemnly and joyfully remember the past work of Christ on the cross, celebrate the present work of Christ at the Father's right hand, and anticipate the future work of Christ in His return for his bride. Together we will spur one another on to love and good deeds. We will meet with one another consistently, pray for one another regularly, and serve one another selflessly. We will share each other's joys and bear each other's burdens. We will edify one another with our speech and encourage one another with our example. We will humbly and gently confront one another and receive correction for one another in accordance with a New Testament understanding of church discipline and restoration. We will give cheerfully and generously to the support of the church, the relief of the poor, and the spread of the gospel throughout all nations. Last paragraph. We will submit to the leadership of elders who have been entrusted by God to care and serve for His body, for this body by teaching the word of Christ to us and modeling the character of Christ before us. And we will affirm deacons as leading servants in the church. If we move from this local body, we will, as soon as possible, unite with another local church where we can carry out the spirit of this covenant and the principles of God's word. May the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with us all. (laughs) Good word. Good word. So, In this text, in Romans chapter 12, I see two parts. The first couple verses that we're going to work on today shows us that we get to experience the mercy of God in worship. The second part tells us that we get to express the mercy of God in community. So we get to experience the mercy of God in worship. That's what we're going to talk about today and for the weeks to come, that we get to express the mercy of God in community. So with that said, let's pull out Romans chapter 12. Let's read Romans chapter 12 together. 
verses 1 through 16. He says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercy of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern that what, the will of, uh, what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function. So we, though many, are one body in Christ, and individually members one of another. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them, if prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. Let love be genuine, abhor what is evil, hold fast to what is good, love one another with brotherly affection, outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal, but be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. So here we see many challenges, like many applications of this text. Uh, matter of fact, there's over 25 different challenges that we see over these very few verses. But as you look at this verse, at the very, very beginning, you notice a key word. The key word is therefore. And we always ask, as Rusty taught us, what is the therefore, therefore? So, uh, you all might think I'm crazy, but we need to see what the therefore is therefore. And so to do that, what's going on is Paul is saying that because of what I have just said across 11 chapters, therefore, because of that, do this. That this should be the outcome of this. So, in order to help us set the context, because we're not preaching through Romans right now, uh, I'm gonna, we're going to go back and review chapters 1 through 11 to help set the context, because it will give us more weight to this text if we understand the context in which it sits. So, with that said, if you have your Bibles, let me encourage you to, to grab it. Uh, I would notate these verses in your Bible. We're going to go back, and we're going to read a lot. Now, we're not going to read all of chapters 1 through 11, but we're going to pull some little snippets out as we go. So, if you don't like the reading of God's Word, you're going to be bored for the next few minutes. So, Romans chapter 1, verse 18 through 23. Romans chapter 1, verse 18. He says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. 
For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made, so that they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God and give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. So just very, very briefly, that's just an excerpt from chapter 1. But chapters 1 and 2 and the beginning of chapter 3 really describe for us God's wrath set against sin and the sinner. So chapters 1 and 2 describe for us God's wrath set against sin and the sinner. Now that passage obviously says a whole lot more than that, but that's just an excerpt to give us a taste of chapters 1 and 2 and the beginning of chapters 3. So next, and I would write this down, Romans chapter 3, verse 21. Here we see that the wrath of God is poured out on none other than Jesus Christ. So verse 21 of chapter 3, But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, for there is no distinction for all sin and fall short of the glory of God, and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in who? Christ Jesus. Whom God put forward as a propitiation or as a a wrath absorber by His blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness, so on and so forth. So God's wrath we see poured out on Jesus. Tracking with me so far? So we have the wrath of God on sin and sinners. Then we have the wrath of God being poured out onto Jesus Christ. Next, we see how the benefits of the cross and the wrath poured out, how that can be appropriated to humans in desperate need of that work on the cross. Romans 4, verse 2 through 3 it says, for if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Going on, in Romans 5, verse 1 through 5, it says, therefore, since we have been justified by, what? By faith. We have a peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we have also obtained access by what? Faith. Into the grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. So, wrath, sin, sinners, wrath poured out in Jesus can be appropriated in our lives by faith. Then going on. Paul talks about how we are dead to sin and alive to God in Christ. Dead to sin, alive to God in Christ. Romans 6, verse 1 through 4. It says, What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into His death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Amen? Amen. We might walk in newness of life. 
So wrath, sin, sinner, wrath of God, wrath of God poured out on Jesus, appropriated by faith. We are now dead to sin, alive to Christ. Going on, Paul talks about how we continue, though, subsequently to struggle with sin. Romans seven fourteen, he says, For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, sold under sin. For I do not understand my own actions. For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. Schizo Paul saying that I keep doing it, but I don't want to do it, but I do it, but I don't want to do it, and, and back and forth, back and forth. And he's saying, I'm struggling with sin. It's hard. But then Paul tells us this, that there is no longer condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So think about this. We were condemned in our sin. Wrath needing to be poured out. That wrath is poured out on Jesus satisfied once and for all in Jesus, then by faith, the benefits of that work are applied to us and those benefits are fast. We're dead to sin, alive to Christ, but yet we still struggle with sin. And then he says this, even in this continued struggle, there is now no longer condemnation for you who are in Christ Jesus. He says, chapter 8, verse 1, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do by sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh. And for sin, He condemned sin. And for sin, and He, con- he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. According to the Spirit, there is now no longer condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Then Paul says, if that's not enough for you in your perseverance, I want you to know this, that nothing can separate you. That your perseverance in the faith is guaranteed. Romans eight thirty eight. For I am sure, listen to these words, that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Now Paul could have just said, hey, you know what? Nothing can separate us. Paul's being quite emphatic here. He wants to make sure that you know that nothing can separate you. Not nothing except for this. Or nothing except for this, but nothing, all-inclusive, can separate you from the love of Jesus. Then he talks about how God has poured out, has, uh, sorry, has, God has pursued us by His grace. Romans 9, verse 22. What if God, desiring to show His wrath and to make known His power, has endured with much patience, vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of His glory for vessels of mercy which He has prepared beforehand for glory, 
even us whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles, as indeed he says in Hosea, those who are not my people, I will call my people, and her who is not beloved, I will call beloved. And in the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there they will be called sons of the living God. So moving on, he reminds us, as we continue to work out our salvation, as we continue to persevere, he reminds us that it's not based on our work. Romans 10, 10. It says, For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says, Everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame, for there is no distinction between Jews and Greeks, for the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Not everyone who does good works, but everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And then lastly, chapter 11, he reminds us that it is all solely based on his grace. Chapter 11, verse 5, he says, So too, at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. But if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. It is grace. So, Paul just said to us, chapters 1 through 3, that God's wrath is set against sin and the sinner. Then he says how God has taken his wrath and poured it out on Jesus. We are delivered and brought into relationship with Him. He talks about how, how all this is done through faith. How we are dead to sin, alive to God in Christ. How we are still struggle with sin, but there is no longer condemnation. And that nothing can separate us from Christ. And He talks about how God has poured out His grace on us. Salvation that is not based on our works, but is solely based upon grace. So Paul is saying, hear this. Paul is saying that you were dead in sin, that you were delivered from the wrath of God by Jesus on a cross, that you're justified by faith, you're no longer condemned, all because of the grace of God. And he says that, in light of that, in light of what God has done, in light of that, worship. Live a life that is a living sacrifice. Therefore, because of this, therefore, do this. That this should be true. Let's think about this. Worship in that context is no longer a duty. But worship is a delight that we, listen to this, worship is a delight that we long to give ourselves to in light of chapters 1 through 11. Later, he's going to call this worship sacrifice. So when we realize the magnitude of Romans 1 through 11, then Romans 12 just comes natural. When we realize the magnitude of Romans 1 through 11, this comes natural. All these commands in Romans 12 come in light of Romans 1 through 11. We don't love each other and spur one another on just because. We don't show hospitality just because. It's not a skill that we just develop because, but it's something that works itself out of what he's done in 1 through 11. It's a product of the factory that God establishes in our lives in chapters 1 through 11. It's something that is produced, but yet something we have to work on as well. 
We love and serve each other because of the mercy of God. Let me make this bold statement. If you're not ready and excited and worshipful at the content of the at the content and the intent of chapter 12, then you don't understand even the surface of chapters 1 through 11. You're saying, well, I hadn't even, we hadn't even really read chapter 12. Well, we've read it one time. But I hope that you see that the measure to which we're excited and willing and desireful to do 12 is by and large a reflection of how much we understand 1 through 11. The more we understand what God has done in our lives, the more it's going to come back out. It's natural. It's meant to be that way. It's because God had mercy on our souls. Paul says this, this is the way we should live in community with each other. That This, first of all, is how we experience the mercy of God in worship. And then later in verse 3, how we get to express the mercy of God in community. So today's text, that was a long introduction. Uh, now we can begin. Uh, Romans 1, let's read 1 and 2. He says this, I appeal to you therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. So first of all, here's what we're going to do. We're just going to go through almost phrase by phrase. We're going to talk about how, what it means and then what, how to understand it and how to apply it. So first section, and we're going to have to move because I've got about 22 minutes. So he says this, I appeal to you. What's he saying? He's, I exhort you. I exhort you. This is a very common phrase for Paul. Exhortations from Paul. Here's the key. Exhortations from Paul are not merely his good advice or his preferences. These represent the authoritative word of God. So he is. What, this is not just suggestions. He is saying, do this. This is what God's will is. Now, here we come immediately after this phrase, the foundation of the whole thing. He says, therefore, brothers, by. By what? By the mercies of God. By the mercies of God. What are the mercies of God? Everything in chapters 1 through 11 and beyond, but at least, and most importantly, 1 through 11, is God's greatest display of mercy, where He rescues sinners out of the depths of our despair. Those are the mercies. Notice that its mercies is in the plural. It's us sinners who God, by His mercies, has rescued us from darkness. It is you, it is us, who could do nothing to save ourselves from the wrath of God, who God extended the mercy to. So in the depth of our despair, God reaches in and pulls us out. And that is His mercy. He did not have to. Romans one twenty one says, For although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him, but they 
became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. And we do this all the time. And we certainly did this prior to the day that we were redeemed. The idea here is that the mercies of God are the cause for what we are getting ready to talk about. Okay? The mercy of God is the cause of what we're getting ready to talk about. So because of what has happened to you, to me, we get to do the following. We get to express the mercy of God in worship, and we get to express the mercy of God in community to each other. So for now and today, the rest of the time, we're going to talk about how we get to express the mercy of God in worship. What does that look like? What is the mercy of God in worship. I want you to stop thinking about worship limited uh, to music, okay, at this point. Get that out of your head. Think of worship in the, in the way Paul is getting ready to describe worship. It's as our whole lives. First thing we see, Paul imperatively says, present yourself wholly to God. Holy. Now, that's not H-O-L-Y, but W-H-O-L-L-Y. This would imply holy, H-O-L-Y as well, but the point is not the holiness of the sacrifice that you're offering. It's the entirety, it's the inclusiveness of the sacrifice that you're offering. He explicitly talks about holy in a second. So Paul's obviously not talking about Holiness alone, H-O-L-Y. So he says, to present yourself holy to God, W-H-O-L-L-Y. This presenting, though, I want to remind us before we, uh, we get into self-righteousness and thinking we can do this on our own, that we cannot separate His command to present ourselves holy, living sacrifice. We can't separate that from the prevenient grace of God. So it is God's work in our life, His continued work in our life, that allows us to do this. I don't have time to work into all of that, but you can study that on your own, write a paper on it if you want to. Uh, It is God who enables us to continue serving Him faithfully. If you ask me to, by the way, if you ask me to define, like, prevenient and give you all, I'm going to tell you to write a paper, okay? Okay. and you can go write a paper and then submit it when you're done. And we can look at it. So the presenting is only made possible. The presenting of the sacrifice is only made possible by God's grace. It's what motivates it. It's what empowers it. It's what gives it. It's what brings it about. And it's God. Again, it's a command and not a suggestion. So the call is to present ourselves as a sacrifice. Let's talk about the sacrifice for just a few moments. Sacrifice literally means killing. I've actually entitled today's lesson, our uh, sermon, A Living Killing. It's literally what Paul, Paul is, is purposely being paradoxical here. He's saying this is a living killing. And then he's going to talk about what that looks like as we go on. But let's talk for just a few moments about sacrifices in the Old Testament. Because what Paul is, is saying here is that 
This is somewhat like the Old Testament, but is also very different than the Old Testament. Somewhat like, but very different as well. So unlike, first of all, unlike the Old Testament, Old Testament sacrifices were bloody. Aren't you glad that living sacrifice doesn't necessarily mean bloody? Um, that would be bad. Um, well, it would, I mean, it would, in God's, He may make it good, but it's not bloody. Let's we'll leave it at that, okay? My mind's wondering. Uh, so they were ways, this bloody atonement were ways of getting atonement. But this, in Paul's context here, this is not true of Christianity. This is not a means of getting atonement as were the sacrifices in the Old Testament. It's not, I will get everything right and then you will let me into heaven. This sacrifice is different. You're not atoning. Paul is not calling us to atone for our sin. Christ atoned for it and ended all guilt offerings. This is an offering of gratitude and praise. This is an offering of obedience to the call. Also, unlike the Old Testament, when those sacrifices were done, they were done. It was over. The sacrifices were over. This sacrifice continues. Now, like the Old Testament, think about this. He would not have used the word sacrifice unless something must be put to death. Sacrifice, meaning killing, putting something to death as a substitution for something else. So to live, and we can flesh this more out later in house gatherings and stuff, but to live the Christian life, you must put to death the idea that you have the right to live as you choose. It feels like death, but it's actually life, right? It feels like death, but it's actually true living. So, back to the verse. He says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a sacrifice. What does Paul mean by bodies? Very quickly, I want want you to consider for a second, in what ways do you divide your personhood up in order to only give parts of it to God? Do you give God your thought life, but you don't give Him your emotional life? Do you give Him your physical body, but you don't give Him your mental body, or your mental life? Paul's point here is it's the whole person is the sacrifice. Every aspect of your being a sacrifice to God. It's interesting, if you study in the Greek, at this point, I think in the translators, it's not wrong the way the ESV has it translated here. I just think it might be a little confusing. The way it's translated, it's translated as if there is this living sacrifice, and it's somehow separate from that which is holy and acceptable. And there's nothing in the Greek to indicate that living should be moved before sacrifice, and then holy and acceptable be kept over here. 
They're all three adjectives, living, holy, acceptable, describing sacrifice. So I think, just for our sake, it would be best for us, if we, as we continue to talk about this today, we talk about it as a sacrifice that has three adjectives. That sacrifice is living, that sacrifice is holy, and that sacrifice is acceptable. So the first adjective, a living sacrifice. What is Paul getting at here? A living sacrifice. So Paul is just saying, you know, as you live your lives, be a sacrifice. Is that Paul's whole entire point? No. Paul's point here is that you, were, you are dead to sin and you are alive to Christ. Now that is a living sacrifice. Yes, it does involve us living and not killing physically, but is a killing of our old self in order to embrace the new self as Christ works the salvation out in us. Romans 6.11, he says, So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Jesus Christ. 6.13, Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as one who has who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. You can look at later Romans 8, verse 13. It is precisely those who are, hear this, it is precisely those who are alive in Christ who are called to give their lives to Him as a sacrifice. That's Paul's point. That you are alive in Christ. Then he describes it as holy and acceptable sacrifice. Again, two more adjectives that describe the sacrifice. See, let me, let me give a little caveat here. Um, we, we think of this passage primarily as I have to do all of these things subsequently in order to have a sacrifice that is holy and acceptable. And I want you to kind of put that thought to the side for just a moment because we're going to come right back to it. But I want you to begin thinking about that for just a few moments. But he says here that this sacrifice is holy this gives a sense of a sacrifice that is dedicated to God, a life that is dedicated to God, a thought life, an emotional life, physical life that is dedicated to God, and acceptable gives a sense of a sacrifice that is pleasing and fragrantly pleasing to God. Now what we've already said is that because of what God has done, we get to do this. We get to do this. So, let's, let's move forward. I'm going to leave that word blank for just a few moments, but we're going to talk about that next blank, which is your blank worship. Um, let's read in Romans 12, 1. He says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercy of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Now, now I know some of you grabbed your pens and you're like, oh, which is your spiritual worship? And does anybody have spiritual written in there right now? Anybody? Good. You listened. Uh, excellent. Here, because I, I want to, and this is, I think this is, this is a big deal, okay? And this is where a little bit of my nerdiness is going to come out, but I think this is a big deal for us. Paul is not saying, I believe, simply that sacrifices are spiritual 
in nature. That's what it appears to be that Paul's intention. But I don't think that that's his point. I think his point is that it is eminently reasonable, given the mercies of God, for believers to dedicate themselves wholly to God. You say, Matt, where do you get that at? So, we're going to do two things. And I told you my nerdiness was going to come out a little bit. This is an expository dictionary. Expository dictionary gives the Greek and Hebrew words and then the semantic range for those words. You say, what's semantic range? The, the range of potential definitions for that word. So I'm going to try to accomplish two things in the next two minutes. Well, it might be longer than two minutes. The two things I want to try to accomplish is I, is I want you guys, first of all, to learn some aspects of, of how we can interpret and understand God's Word, but I also want you to get the meaning of what Paul's intending to say here. So we're going to, try, we're going to kind of do it together. So if I look at mounts, and now there's a couple other ways you have to get to what is the word there, the Greek word there, but the, for our purposes this morning, the Greek word used for spiritual in spiritual worship there is a word, I'm going to mispronounce it, but it basically is some, some, something like logikin. That's the Greek word used for spiritual at that point. So, the question here is, well, let me, let me take it from there. Let's look at mounts. Mounts, if you look up this word logikos, or as, as it's logikin here, that word is used two times in the New Testament. Only two times. And it says it's pertaining to speech, pertaining to reason, and in the New Testament, particularly, rational, spiritual, pertaining to the mind and soul. Rational, spiritual. Those are not the same words. Rational, spiritual. So what does Paul mean? The ESV translates it as spiritual the semantic range of that the list of potential words there is rational and spiritual so you say well how do we know like how do we know which is which that's a very good question let's take a look at that here's what's interesting paul everywhere else matter of fact this is the only time paul uses this word only time the other time this word is used, it's used by Peter. And so, in order for us to understand, see, see, we can't just go to this book, okay, and, and this is someone who, who knows that the range of potential, potential meanings during that time when Paul was writing this were these two options. We can't just go to that and pick which one feels best. We just go, okay, well that means spiritual, and he's talking about reasonable, and no, 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 which, which one is it? What's the best word to translate to understand what Paul is saying here? So to do that, one of the first places we start is context. What's the context where Paul's at here? What's he saying? Then it's good to look at other New Testament writers, in this particular case, because we're in the Greek, and see how they used that word. Then... Uh, you're, and I know some of you are like, well, that's crazy, it's Greek, I don't know Greek. Oh, I don't know Greek that well either. Well, yeah. Yes. But 
you don't have to know it, like, to be able to speak it uh, in order to study it, okay? Um, so let me, let me speed this up. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 2. Keep your finger in Romans chapter 12. We're not done there. 1 Peter chapter 2. So once we've looked at that writer's other usages of that word, of which this one there is no other. So Paul does not use logikin anywhere else in his New Testament writings. So then we need to turn to other New Testament writings that use the same word. So if you read in chapter 2 verse 1, Peter says, So put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander, like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk. Spiritual, right there, is logikin. You say, well, but they, they translated it again as spiritual. He says, that by which you may grow up into salvation, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious. Verse 5, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house. What's interesting here is that Peter doesn't use logikin in verse 5. He uses pneuma takis. Pneuma, the root pneuma is the word for spirit. That's where we translate the word spirit from in the New Testament. So here he uses pneuma takis. Now, so let's pause for just a moment there. Ultimately, when it comes down to interpreting God's word, this is our, we do it, we let text and help us interpret text. It's not sinful to look what we call extra biblical at other usages of the Greek words during this time. Alright? Because it can help us, give us insight to how Paul is using this word. So at this time, if you look at a couple different writings, particularly Philo, of um, who wrote the Testament of Levi, you can, again, nerdiness, I know, but uh, in there, it's clear from the context that what he means by logikin is reasonable. And here, I think, in my, in, in my judgment, and, and it, uh, obviously this is partially my opinion, I mean, this is called interpretation. Here, I think in verse chapter 2, verse 2, that would be better understood as reasonable or rational. This is your reasonable milk. You say why. I say at the very least because why didn't he use the same Greek word just two sentences apart from each other? You say, what about in Paul? Why, why do you think that Paul meant the same? Why do you think he meant reasonable or rational. Well, first of all, because here, I think in Peter, it means reasonable or rational, but also Paul, every other time, uses the word group pneuma for spiritual. Every other time, and this time, he does not. And you say, okay, so you've got these other examples coming back to the immediate context. How does that fit in the immediate context? Think about what Paul is doing. Paul just got done for 11 chapters saying, 
that God has done all of this. And then he gets to this point and says that by the mercies of God, by everything that I've just said, therefore present your lives as a living sacrifice. What Paul is doing is he's making an argument not that because Jesus has done all of this, or because God has done all this, the argument is not, because He's done this, you need to go do this. The argument is that because He has done all of this, this is what will take place. This will be the result of the mercies of God in your life. This is reasonable. This is rational. This is what will come about because of what God has done in one through 11. Again, where does that put the emphasis at? It puts the emphasis on God's doing in our lives. It's interesting, if you study some early church fathers, they actually changed the word logikin to pneumatakis. You say, why? Why would some of the early church fathers, or some of the early uh, writers, why would they try to change that word in there? Well, during Paul's day, you have the Stoics and the uh, and Aristotle and Aristotelians, and, and basically what all of they're doing is it's all about reason, all about logic. And so is Paul just being like a Stoic, and they were afraid to associate Paul with Stoics, so they started changing that word. Now, I don't know if that's why the ESV translated it that, were they afraid of that, but nevertheless, I think Paul's point here, and for your fill-in on your thing, is that this is your reasonable worship. This is your reasonable worship. Now, spiritual doesn't uh, hurt anything uh, as far as doctrinally wise, theologically, it doesn't change uh, anything major. But I think it helps us understand better that Paul is saying that all of this, God has done all of this, and because of that, the mercies of God, by the mercies of God, that this is what's going to happen. God's grace in you will bring about this. This is your reasonable worship. So, moving forward. So Paul has told us that since God has poured out His mercy on us, the only rational thing to do is to present your whole lives as a sacrifice. A sacrifice that is what? Living, holy, and acceptable. Now Paul is going to flesh out what it means by holy, W-H-O-L-L-Y. So, back at Romans 12, look at verse 2 with me. It says, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed. So, the next big thought for us is be transformed by the penetration of the coming age. Of the coming age. You say, how in the world do you get that? First of all, I don't think Paul, and some people interpret it this way, but I don't think Paul is referring to outward conformity versus genuine interior transformation. I don't think Paul is drawing a distinction between that which is outward and that which is inward. Because why? Because Paul is obviously clearly concerned about the whole person. He's worried that their adaption to this world will shape them in every dimension of their lives. And that's the same fear for us. 
is that this world would transform and shape every aspect of our lives. And if we look, I think we'll be surprised at how much of our lives are shaped by this world. Note, though, in the text, what he contrasts here. Note the trust. He says, conformed to this age is transformed with the next phrase that I did not read, by the renewal of your mind. So he says, be not conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. So on this side, it's conformed to this age versus the renewal of the mind. I think what Paul's suggesting here is that conformity to this age embraces thinking patterns that are alien to the renewal of the mind. So embracing the thinking of this age is counterproductive, is alien, alien to the renewal of the mind that is taking place. Um, age, quick note here, um, in accord with the New Testament view, is the idea of two ages, that we have this age that is evil and the age to come that is blessed. The age that is coming upon us. The, we'll also refer to this as the kingdom. So when Jesus comes, Jesus says that the kingdom has come upon us. So there's without getting all the theological stuff of this, that, that the kingdom is already here, but not yet completely here. So as redemption takes place, the reality of the kingdom or the new age to come is being experienced more fully. It's becoming more of a reality as this world is redeemed, as humans are redeemed, as God sanctifies us and sets us apart. So... This, uh, this is common uh, thought in the gospel. You can look at Matthew chapter 12, Matthew chapter 13, Luke chapter 16. Um, it's common in Paul, 1 Corinthians 1, 2 Timothy 4, Ephesians 1. So transformation. Sorry, if you did not get those, I'll do that one more time. Matthew chapter 12, 13, chapter 12, chapter 13, Luke 16, 1 Corinthians 1, 2 Timothy 4, Ephesians 1. All right. We're going to land this plane here in just a few minutes, okay? So hang with me. Hang with me. So transformation by the renewal of the mind, by the renewal of the mind, involves the coming age penetrating in through the muck, through the garbage, through the sin, and transforming our thoughts, our mind. The coming age transforming our minds, our thoughts. So, what's this transformation mean? What's this we talking about? Um, some of you know as a church, I've uh, been here for a long while, our vision of where we want to go as a church has not always been super clear. Uh, that is my fault. Uh, I take responsibility for that. But my point is not that, but that what is our vision? And this is our vision. That the coming age would completely take over the age that we're in. That the gospel would transform everything. Ourselves, our families, our city, in our world. 
That's our vision. And we're going to sing that tune from now until Jesus either gives us better words to say it in, or he comes back to complete it. But our vision is to see the gospel transform everything. Ourselves, our families, our church, our city, and our world. We want to be a part of God's redeeming work. So we live in this age, an age that is ruled by Satan, but ultimately by God. But Jesus said that this kingdom is upon us. The age to come is piercing through more and more every day. But here's the deal. Satan has us convinced, in many ways, that God has, way, has raised the white flag. Right? We look around this world, we live in despair, don't you think? Like, I look around, and I look at the news, and you go, wow, this is terrible. And, and Look, God is still king. He is still sovereign. And he has not waved the white flag. One thing that was encouraging to me as I was at this preaching conference, he said that, do not be mistaken, do not think that the change that God brings about in his people, particularly in this context, the teaching of the word, do not think that that is always, and do not think that, 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 he, that it is even often visible to our eyes, but that the change of God is probably primarily invisible and then comes about later in fruits, um, but that we can be mistaken that when we look around us, we can think that God is receding, that the kingdom is receding. It's not receding. It's coming full force. Our God is still king. Jesus still reigns and rules at his right hand, and he will return for us. Right? Amen? Amen. So, as a part of our vision, you know, for those of you who have done the membership class, we talk about being family, being learners, being servants, being missionaries. This is a part of what that gospel transformation looks like. So this renewing of the mind, part of what that's going to look like, if I could paint a picture, is people who, who are worshipers, people who are increasingly worshipers, increasingly a family as we're talking about in this series, that we're increasingly learners of the word, that we're servants. We're going to talk about what all this looks like in the, in the weeks to come, but we're missionaries. So we do all of these things. We're worshipers, family, learners, servants, so that we can be missionaries, right? so that we can go out. So the question is, how are we going to see the age to come pierce through the sinfulness of this age. And Paul answers this for us. This happens as we are transformed and as our thinking is altered. How does that take place? It happens as our thinking, as our minds is altered. Verse 2. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed. Why? How? By the renewal of your mind. Do not draw a false distinction between body and mind in verse 1 and 2. I don't think that's Paul's point. Uh, Paul, again, views the human holistically. There's an intimate connection between the way one thinks and what one does. 
See, we've given in to this thought that I can think one way and then my actions and what comes out is going to be different. No, no, no. That's, that is the one thing that is probably almost always consistent with us. I mean, we are, tend to be very inconsistent people. Um, the one thing that is consistent is that what is inside comes out. So what you see out here is just simply a reflection or an outworking of what's inside of here. And so Paul saying, be renewed by your mind. So instead of the downward spiral of thinking that happens in chapter 1 of Romans, if you don't know what I'm talking about, go back and read it. Where their hearts are turned from God, they exchanged images for the immortal God, and, and their heart is spiraling down, their minds are spiraling down, where they are hardened and darkened, and instead, our minds are not given to futility, but are renewed and understanding and truth. And that's what God is doing. The means of transformation here does not bypass the mind. It is the mind. Now, obviously the heart is involved here too. I'm not, neglect, not negating that. Another topic, another time. But let me say this. This does not mean... Hear me clearly. This is, I don't hear Paul saying that this is just simply a gathering of knowledge. He's talking about a renewed thinking, a thought process. Now, how is that thought process going to be changed? Well, it's going to be changed, at least in part, by knowledge. But knowledge of what? So, let me back up for a second. This is not that we don't need to gain knowledge in general things that God has called us to do. There's going to be other texts and other reasons for us to be good stewards of the knowledge God's given us in order to serve, whether that's at a job or in our families, whatever. That I'm not negating that. But Paul's point here is that our thought processes, that our minds would be renewed by the coming age. That it would penetrate in and change the way we view this world, the way we think through things. And that largely is going to be affected by the knowledge of what? God. By our knowledge of God. That is what will change and renew our mind. Let me just say before you get to your checklist. <laughs> is that this, you can know a whole lot of the Bible and miss Paul's point. So knowing the Bible doesn't necessarily equal this. Um, and I think that largely is where the heart is going to come in. Knowing the truth, loving the truth, results in the actions. So, the gospel, this transforming power in our life, is light years more important than virtually anything else. Knowing the work of the gospel in our hearts, and then from that pours everything else. Right, so our knowledge in order to be faithful in what God's called us to do, whether that's in our jobs or in our family, you know, whatever that is, but that is just a, is an outworking of this renewing of the mind that Paul's talking about here in Romans chapter 12. You say a renewal, let me say this, a renewal that begins in the mind does not end there. Let me read to you a verse, and we're almost done. 2 Corinthians chapter 3 verse 18. I love this verse. Paul says, and we all, with unveiled faces, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being what? Transformed. Into the same, what? 
image. From one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. Who is the Spirit. So how are we transformed? We are transformed by beholding the glory of the Lord. So, Paul goes on, last thought here. He says, verse 2, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. So he says, after a process of testing and examining, this reveals that which is approved. This is where this renewing of the mind comes in because we need the mind and that renewed mind, renewed perspective, renewed process, redeemed processes, redeemed perspectives. We need that to examine, to test, in order to discern the will of God. Now, the, his, here his, he's not saying that the examining is good and acceptable and perfect. He's saying the will of God is good and acceptable and perfect. It's basically Paul's comments on God's own estimate, if you will, of his will. And I think he does this maybe, it's just a little bit of speculation, but I think he does this to remind believers that the transformation that's been brought about in them by the renewal of the mind is pleasing to the Lord. So Paul's saying, because of what God has done, because of what God has done, the mercies of God, this living sacrifice that's totally acceptable, this is, this is your reasonable, this is your rational act, this is what is practically, this is what will come about because of what God has done. It's reasonable, it's imminent that this is what should happen. And then it's going to happen as God renews your mind, again, rational, reasonable, so renew your mind, by what? Because the coming age is going to redeem that this is, this is becoming a more of a reality in our lives. And from that, we're able to discern what is God's will. And by the way, when all of this takes place, that will is good, acceptable, and perfect. It's God's. So what have we traded the mercies of God for? Complacency, idol worship, a church with blurred faces, self-gratification, privacy, a community of anonymity. But what do we get with the mercies of God? We get the pursuit of Christ. We get God worship. A church where your face, as we're going to talk about going forward, a church where your face is known and cared for. Ultimate gratification in Christ. We get a community of transformation. We get those things when we don't exchange the mercy of God for idols. So let's be a church that wants to see the gospel transform everything. Ourselves, our families, church, our city, and our world. Question, are you presenting your life as a sacrifice that is living 
holy, and acceptable. We read this quote and we're done. Timothy Keller says this, Every day, every hour, every moment, right now, you have to deliberately, consciously, continually, and perpetually offer yourself to Him. It's constant and it's never over. Each day, constantly offering ourselves to Him. Let's pray. Father, um, thank you for your word. And uh, Father, that it transforms our hearts and our lives. Father, thank you for giving us the grace to see your truths. Father, I, I pray that this would not just become a cataloged item that we put in the back of our dusty closet. But this would be a continual daily struggle and fight to submit our hearts to you, to enjoy the mercies of your grace. Father, we, uh, we give you the praise because you are so good to us. And Father, we feel the tension. There's a tension that I do need to work hard. I need to beat the flesh. I need to fight and contend for the faith and, and push forward in my life and but at the same time, Father, I know that if the redemption in my life is real, and the redemption in our lives is real, then ultimately you are the one who will bring this about in our lives. And so ultimately, foundationally, and at the beginning of our pursuit of you involves a submission to you. And a recognition that it is you who will work this through us. It is your mercies that will bring about transformation and the renewal of our minds as the kingdom to come becomes a reality more and more every day until we see his face. And Father, it's in your son's name we pray. Amen. Amen. As we're dismissed, have a wonderful day. Enjoy living your life as a sacrifice to our king.